everyone. Welcome to my newest podcast, Advocating with Justice. I'm your host, Justice Pinkney. And I know what you're thinking. It's not justice with an I, though. My name is Justice with a Y. Some might call it fate because my name is Justice and I fight against injustices in the community, but that does not mean I'm a lawyer or am I involved in the criminal justice field. I am a social worker. I graduated from FIU, and I've spent my time really doing the macro practice of social work because I believe fixing things in the community really helps them doing the above ground work with policies and raising awareness, psychoeducation, and getting involved in government. So enough about me. I started this podcast to raise awareness, as I've said, about unjust topics that are happening in our own community because as community members, I feel like you deserve to know as well and be as informed as possible. And this doesn't just include things happening in the community. It also includes mental illnesses that affect many members of our society. In every episode, I'm going to do a new topic with a different um, disorder. But today, our very first episode and our first topic I'm really excited to talk to you guys about is the school to prison pipeline featuring attention deficit hyperactivity disorder or ADHD. All right, guys, so tune in. Okay, I want everyone listening and tuning in. First of all, I want to say thank you, but I want you guys to get ready. This is going to be my trigger warning and disclaimer that this topic can be very triggering to some populations. So if you feel that way, please feel free to pause or exit the podcast and revisit it at a time where you're more comfortable. Because this topic is rooted and viewed in a pan-theoretical framework that's composed of discrimination, objectification, and dehumanization. I just want you guys to listen throughout this podcast and see if you recognize any of that. Some I will point out more explicitly, and the others, they're implicit. So let's just start off by describing ADHD, and I'm not going to go into too much detail about the disorder, just about the statistics surrounding our children in the community. Yes, this is about children, so brace yourself, parents and children that have experienced these things that I'm going to be talking about, I do have a treat for you at the end of this podcast episode. Alrighty. So for those of you that do not know, again, ADHD is defined as attention deficit hyperactivity disorder, and it presents itself in children as the inability to sit still, jumping into conversations without saying excuse me, the inability to concentrate or focus, impulsivity, and more. If you guys want to look up more, that's perfectly fine. There's more in the DSM, but I'm going to get straight into it. It's often diagnosed 
in white children more than it is in black children. But I want to take a closer look at that number. Currently in the U.S., there are 5 million children diagnosed with ADHD under the age of 18. 14% of those children that are diagnosed with ADHD are accounted for for the whole population of children in the U.S. Yet, it's an, and not an accurate representation, especially for minorities because of the underdiagnosis of ADHD among these groups. For instance, the odds of being diagnosed with ADHD are 70% lower for black children, 50% lower for Latino children, and 46% lower for children of other races and ethnicities. Now, I want to pause because if you're thinking like me, 70% is such a high number. And let's explore why. There was a study that looked at the reasons for this discrimination or this discrepancy. And it really comes down to stigma for black communities. Parents from the black community think of mental health in their children as a very taboo topic. They most of the time think of it as an excuse or try to protect their child from it. They don't see the diagnosing of their child as something that explains the behavior. It's more of excusing the behavior of the child. And that also goes for the medication for treatment of ADHD. Black parents tend not to go towards that because when children are prescribed medications like Ritalin or Vyvanse or Concerta, things that treat ADHD, parents are scared because they think that that's going to lead to a dependence to control the behaviors rather than fixing it themselves. And they also believe that their children will in the future become dependent on these drugs for drug abuse. And that's typically not the case because in that same study, they looked at white populations. And when the parents, they're often more overly diagnosed because the white parents need an explanation for the kid's behavior. And they're ready to jump on the advantages of the treatments of ADHD. And black populations are just not. And I think that needs to be something that is explored more, given more information about. And I'll go into that a little later when I talk about the responsibilities and our roles for what we should be doing to fix this issue. So back to it. It's typical of children with ADHD to exhibit classroom behaviors that warrant punishments, and that's due to their symptoms. However, it is recorded that black children are disproportionately punished compared to their white counterparts. Additionally, it is believed that anywhere between 25 to 50% of these children are incarcerated in the U.S., because of the choices that schools make to handle their discipline, utilizing courts and policing policies. These discrepancies in numbers are attributable to the racial inequalities, excuse me, 
that are systematically rooted and reinforced in America from hundreds of years ago, and I'm not even going to go into that. And this is regardless of socioeconomic status. And many times this leads these vulnerable populations at such young ages to experience their first encounters with the criminal judicial system because of school. Now, at this point, you might have many questions, just like I did while doing this research. For instance, like, when did it start? So let's take a look at this. In 1973, it was reported in schools that fewer than 4% of all students were suspended. And when the war on drugs era was happening in the 80s, in the time of Ronald Reagan's administration, schools wanted to adopt these same policies for their students and be tougher on discipline. And this led to an increased police presence in school by 38% between the years of 1997 and 2007. It increased security guards by 27% between 1999 and 2007. And this led to an increase in student arrests. Students felt alienated. It increased safety issues for students and it increased police assaults on students from the officers. And when these policies were installed in school, the discipline rates worsened. Since the 70s, suspensions have more than doubled for all students, especially black students. Black students are often victimized three times more than white students, leading to suspensions or expulsions. In the population of students, black students only make up 16% of the population, but account for 31% of all in-school arrests. In 1994, schools enacted a gun-free act to suspend any student for one full year just for bringing a weapon to school. This doubled the rate of suspension since 1970 because the definition of the word weapon was subjective to teachers and administrators. Not only did they define it as the physical object of a gun, but when you were younger and you pointed your index finger and middle finger and your thumb in that L shape and pointed it horizontally, finger guns, Pop-Tart guns, so if you chewed your Pop-Tart in a form of a gun, or bringing camping forks that were meant for Cub Scouts to school, all counted as a weapon and were utilized to suspend students that engaged in these actions. And this led to the broken windows theory to crack down on small offenses and make their residents feel safer, but also to discourage serious crimes by suspending children for talking back, skipping class, being disobedient or disruptive. I don't know about you guys, but for me, it's just they were looking for excuses to just get these students out of school. And it's it led to such horrible things. For instance, and no respect to um, these people I'm about to talk about, but school resource officers, who are also police, just for the school, were hired at a 30% increase between 1997 and 2007. They were meant to protect students from events like mass shootings. However, in the school year of 2011 and 2012, 
92,000 students were arrested at higher rates for lower level offenses, including students with disabilities such as mental illnesses like ADHD. Interestingly enough, students with disabilities only make up 8.6% of the student population in the US, but represent 36% of all incarcerated youth. In fact, black students with these disabilities are three times as likely to be out of school suspended or expelled, and two times more likely to face in-school suspension or expulsion. Now, many sco school districts are trying to rectify these wrongs and make school discipline better and even less harsh. For instance, in Broward County, Florida, school districts decided that in 2013, the way they would handle the matters of discipline that were nonviolent misdemeanors would be handled by the school without involving police officers. And other schools in the U.S. tried exploring restorative justice programs that focused on reforming the relationships between teachers and students and administrators to give children the opportunity to resolve issues through communication. In fact, schools in the Oakland, California school district actually adopted some of these ways and within 10 years, the suspension rate was cut in half. Now, if you're listening to this and you're actually on track with me, you should be wondering at this point, why are black students and children so targeted by this terrible system? And I kid you not, this is an actual fact that I'm about to make um, give you. And it's backed up by research. So here's a statement, and I want you to brace yourself. Schools have a subconscious bias towards black students. In the Journal of Personality and Social Psychology and D a di Dehumanization Bias, I'm sorry guys, I'm very passionate right now, was conducted in 2014. They had 176 white male officers asked to match photos of people, black and white, with photos of big cats or big apes. And what the researchers found was that these officers that are sworn to serve and protect us and that are also hired in schools to watch our children dehumanize black people because they match them with apes. And the officers that did so had a record of using force on black children. Additionally, another part of this study found that white female college students associated young black children as being significantly less innocent than white children at age 10 and up. The results of the study yielded the beliefs that children in societies have characteristics such as innocence and the need for protection. And these participants believe that young black boys are responsible for their actions at an age, the same age, where young white boys benefit from the assumption that children are innocent and less responsible for their actions. Equally, they found that black people are seen to be more superhuman magical or even paranormal and associated with the inability to feel pain and that's something i can get into in another episode but we just don't have time for today now with so much information and believe me there's way more out there 
you should be thinking at this point, what do I do, Justice? How can I fix this myself? Because I asked the same thing while preparing for this episode. As a social worker, I came to the realization, and if you're a social worker listening to this, sorry, not sorry, guys, we need to be doing more. We need more social workers in school to assist with this matter of discipline before it even gets to where it it needs to be de-escalated and maintain relationships between students, teachers, administrators, and their parents. In a mezzo perspective, we need to incorporate, incorporate ourselves with the law enforcement and communities to ensure that mental illnesses are not taken as criminal. On a macro level, which is my area of preference, we need to be doing advocating and lobbying and changing policies in schools. Now, if you're not a social worker and you want to get more information or join groups to advocate and do more boots on the ground work, you can check out programs and groups like the American Civil Liberties Union and the NAACP. They work to raise awareness, much like myself, but they accept donations. They do the research behind these topics. They do lobbying groups. They go out there and the double. NAACP actually has a legal defense and education fund that is incorporated to dismantle the school-to-prison pipeline and change policies and practices in public schools and hold public hearings. Alrighty, guys. I know um, this is all the time we have for today, but before I sign off, the treat I had for you guys at the beginning of this episode was to inform my listeners about an educational event that's happening May 20th, 2021 at 6.45 Mountain Time, 8.45 Eastern Time. It's free. It'll be online. The link can be found on my website at www.advocatingwithjusticewithay.com, and the event will be held on Zoom. This event is called Disrupting the School-to-Prison Pipeline from Conversation to Commitment 2021. It will host a panel of extraordinary youth to discuss the impact of the school-to-prison pipeline and it, the effects it has on them, the people they care about, and ways to address this issue. It's for anyone with a computer, teacher, administrator, students, parents, police, school resource officers, and more. We will be posting it on our website, our Instagram page, our Twitter page, and our Facebook page. So these, please be sure to check it out, participate it, share it. And I will hopefully see you guys next time. Thank you again for tuning off and This is Justice signing off, hoping for peace, love, and happiness. Have a great weekend, guys.